Acts 6, 9 says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. God, we pray this morning that you would take your word and you would accomplish your purposes. And uh, the words I have on these papers up here, God, that, that, that you will take control of and, uh, and do with them what you will. God, your spirit, your truth is what we need this morning. So I pray we would listen. God, thank you for this example of Stephen, our brother, the first one to put his life on the line, lay it down for the gospel here in the church in Acts. God, I pray that we would learn from them this morning. And God, we need a word from you. We need your spirit to encourage us to be present here in a powerful way. Speak through your spirit and your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'll tell you right from the beginning, it's funny, you write a sermon, and actually this is on paper, was is one of the shortest sermons I've written in a long time. And then uh, started it in second service, and uh, our first service, and uh, ended up emphasizing things that I didn't intend to emphasize, and got through half of it. So God writes that, right? So, so I'll tell you right up front, you're not going to get through all the blanks on your paper. But that's okay because the Stephen narrative here, we intended, I intended, it's going to play out over two to three weeks here anyway. This is one of the longer sections in the book of Acts. A lot of ink is spilled on Stephen, and I think there's some significance to that. So we do want to take our time, walk through this and his sermon uh, there in chapter 7 over the next couple of weeks. So it'll all blend together in the end. But you have to listen to the Spirit, right? So That song, um, it came out around the time, not exactly, but close to the time when the Supreme Court of the United States legalized gay marriage in this country. And I remember hearing that news, and you know, when that was just kind of this discouraging time. Oh no, what are we going to do? And I so distinctly remember, I got in my car to drive home for lunch, and I turned on the radio, and that song came on. 
And I remember going from this kind of like this, oh no, despairing, to almost like when I got out of my car in my driveway having this little attitude in a good way. Who cares what the world does? We know what we've been called to do. And who cares what philosophies and logic the world puts out there? Because I know the message that we've been given. And what I've been called to do is just faithfully proclaim that. I'm a messenger. We're messengers. All of us. Called to stand. Called to stare in the face of a world that hates God and hates his truth and say, in love, expressing the love of Jesus to this world, proclaiming this because we love this world, that is wrong. This is what God gives us. This is what God has to say about these things. This is God's truth. And I will proclaim that boldly, much like the brother with the the megaphone. And if you throw my megaphone down and you shout me down, I'm going to get back up again and proclaim the message again over and over. Right? This is Stephen's story. Stephen understood that he was a messenger. So I want to unpack this guy a little bit today and next week and probably the week after because I want it to sink in. I remember Mike Liang, one of our Chinese students, came to me a year or so ago and he said, Pastor Craig, if you know Mike, you know he's very, the guy loves the word of God and he's so passionate about it. He said, Pastor Craig, Pastor Craig, do you know in scripture we don't talk about enough do you know who we don't talk about enough? And I'm like, well, there's a lot of people, probably, Mike. You know, He's like, Stephen. We don't talk about Stephen enough. I'm like, you know what, you're right. And he's like, Stephen such a great example to us. And I was just reading, and I was just convicted of that. Here's the thing, right? We're going to read Stephen. We're going to read, and our mind will do what it often does. Well, yeah, this is one of the Bible superheroes, right? It's good. I'm glad we had those. This isn't us, though. I can't be that. And we hinted at this last week. The fact of the matter is we can be that. We're called to be that. How though, right? How, where do we get Stevens from? Where does a Stephen come from? I think there's something subtle in the previous verse. Um, it gives us a little hint as to where Stevens, comes, Stevens come from. This goes back to where we were a couple weeks ago. I want you to notice a couple of terms in Acts chapter 6 verse 7. Again, this is all flowing together here. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word Christian is a good word, right? It's a good word. It comes, actually. We're going to see it. It, it comes at Antioch. We were first called Christians in Antioch. It was almost a little, almost a little slanderous type of thing. It, little Christ's. Christ ones. It's a good word. I think that word has lost some of its meaning today. Right? I mean, you go to some parts of the world, and if you're from the United States, you're a Christian. Well, that's not true, right? Um, if I have inspirational quotes on my wall from Philippians 4.13, I go to Chris Tomlin concerts, attend church, I have inspirational Christian stuff laying around my house. I'm a Christian. No, maybe. But we've really 
stripped away some of the depth of the meaning of that word. Stephen's come from understanding what that word really means. And it's here in that verse in Acts, verse 7. There's two terms there, two descriptions of Christians. Disciples. And then in reference to the priests. What does it say about the priests? Does it say they became Christians? No. Did they? Yes. But know how it actually is worded here. They became obedient to the faith. Where do Stephen's come from? They come from understanding the nature of Christianity. That yes, I receive God's grace freely and I cannot earn it. I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. That's the gospel. Right? But the gospel also calls me to response. I become a disciple. Jesus isn't just my savior. He's my Lord. I become a disciple A disciple imitates the one that they are following. And this is going to be all over the place. Stephen's life mirrors Jesus in incredible ways. He came to look like Jesus. He became obedient. These priests, which that's a whole other topic we could go off on right here. Priests, the fact that priests are coming to the Lord. Crazy. They come obedient to the faith. See, Stephen's not a superhero. Stephen just became a disciple. Stephen just said, my life is going to look like Jesus. Stephen just said, I'm going to become obedient. Jesus said in the gospel, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. So where do you get a guy who's willing to die for his faith? Well, it's simply a guy who loves Jesus. It's simply a guy who says, I'm going to do what God says to do. That's why Stephen was powerful. That was the foundation of it. Christianity is about life transformation, right? Christianity, as it's presented in Acts, is not just a name that I take to myself. It's not just an emotional, flash-in-the-pan type of experience. Conversion involves life change and submitting to Jesus. This is where Stephen's come from. So we're introduced to this guy here, and we find ourselves staring at a familiar narrative. This is the third, and uh, you know, it's a, I'll use the word cycle, this persecution cycle. This is the third cycle in the, the first six, seven chapters of Acts here of, of the, this persecution uh, narrative, right? We saw it come up. We've, we've reviewed this already in the, in the past weeks. Uh, first, it was Peter and John when they healed the lame man. They're brought in, the Sanhedrin. They're questioned, and they're threatened and they're released. Cycle one, right? So it's spiraling. Going, think of it from going small to bigger. It's spiraling. That was cycle one. Comes back around cycle two. The past couple of weeks, the apostles now, they're preaching. All 12 of them are arrested. They're brought in. It intensifies. The persecution cycle there is nuanced a little bit differently. Now it's all the apostles, not just two. And now instead of being released with a beating, or with, with a warning. Now they're released with physical harm. They are beaten. Severely beaten. Cycle two completes. We come back around now, cycle three. And it's the same pattern, right? They're preaching, they're proclaiming, they're arrested, they're questioned. But there's some nuances now that are different. Now, one, 
it's no longer the apostles that are the target. Now the persecution has moved to average Joe Christian. Right? This is one of the, now he's a, one of the seven, but, but now this extends beyond just the apostles now. This is including Stephen. The other notable thing about this persecution is that now it's not instigated by the religious leaders. It's instigated by the synagogue of the freedmen. These, these Jews who had come back to Jerusalem. Now the persecution is being instigated by the general populace of Jerusalem. And as you'll see here in just a minute, uh, over the next couple of weeks, is, and, and it's not limited then, that this group of freedmen is able now to turn the population of Jerusalem against the believers. Remember, that wasn't possible last time. The church had the favor of, of the people, so much so that the guards were afraid to take them by force. But now the populace has turned. Not surprising in a city where just a few months before, in the course of a week, it went from Hosanna, Hosanna, the king of David in the highest, to crucify him, Right? So Jerusalem kind of could be like this. (laughs) But here you go. It's an intensification. The spiral is getting bigger. The persecution grows in its intensity, and it grows in who it is including. So this is a significant hinge point in the book of Acts. And by the way, does some of that sound familiar? The day and age that we live, right? Is not more and more the culture turning against Christianity? average Joe in the street, right? Um, It's following the same pattern. There's nothing new under the sun, right? (laughs) Following a lot of the same pattern. So this is a significant shift in the book of Acts as far as the attitudes of the world towards Christianity. It's also a significant shift because as chapter 6 transitions into chapter 7, we're going to say farewell a little bit to the Jerusalem church. It's still there operating, but remember the overall overarching trajectory of the book of Acts, right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. That shift is happening here in chapter 6 and chapter 7. For one thing, this persecution, as we'll see in chapter 8, right at the beginning of chapter 8, this persecution becomes the means by which the gospel now goes out and spread. As the Christians scatter and flee Jerusalem, it says they flee, but they still proclaim the gospel in everywhere that they are going. And most significantly, at the end of the Stephen narrative, we're introduced to a new player in the book of Acts, standing there, approving of the stoning of Stephen, holding people's jackets so they can throw their rocks, a man named Saul of Tarsus is introduced through the Stephen narrative. The gospel spreading. You can see how Luke is masterfully writing this, pointing us this trajectory that we're going on. So there's some of the context of the book of Acts, and this, uh, in particular this, this passage again. So let's talk about Stephen. Let's learn a little about him. Um, So our first point here in this third persecution um, uh, cycle. Conflict between the church and the world intensifies and expands. Okay? And we've unpacked that a little bit already. We see it expanding in the sense that powerful ministry is being administered by Stephen and not just the apostles. Okay, the ministry of Acts, the persecution, everything's expanding. So Stephen now, and not just the apostles. What do we know about this guy, Stephen? Not much. Surprisingly little for a guy who's such a significant player in the book of Acts. But here's a few things. Number one, I love this, and it makes you wonder, right, God knows everything. Like, does God give parents names for their kids? Because Stephen, you know what the word Stephen means in Greek? Stephanos? It means crown, wreath. 
It's, it's the crown, it's the wreath that the victors in the, the, the athletic games would win. They'd crown them when they won the games. Like, how fitting is that? I think when Stephen was born, God's like, oh, I got a great name for this guy, Stephen. Hey, let's name him Stephen, right? I love that. What, what better name for a guy that finishes his life's race in this manner? Like, this guy fought the fight. This guy ran, sprinted through the finish line. Stephanos earned a Stephanos. In essence, that's, that's what's going on here. He was a victor. He didn't quit. He didn't give up. I love this guy. Stephen is a non-apostle who rises to prominence through his character, through his love of God, through his knowledge of the scriptures, the presence of the Spirit in his life. What a great example of how to live and die. What a great example of how to run the race. And I'm struck with this. You read chapter 6 and 7. This is the last day of his life. We're reading the last day of his life. And I thought about that sitting in my office this week. Thought about that as about proclaiming this today. Like, what if it was mine? What if it was yours? Stephen didn't wake up this morning of Acts 6 and go, I think I'm going to die today. People chucking rocks at me. Where's my breakfast? You know? He just got up and was what he was. Not all of us are going to die preaching. Most of us won't. But I can die being faithful. And what if this was it? What if this was it? The last day of your life, it was on record. Would we read the last day of your life and go, he finished well as a dad, he finished well as a husband. He earned the Stephanos. He quit, right? So, He's a major encouragement and challenge to us in that way. Common guy, Stephen. Not an apostle, right? I want you to think about his boldness. Just think about his boldness. He knew what had happened to the apostles. He lived in Jerusalem. He saw floggings. He saw people who had been flogged. Let me read this. This is from the Mishnah. It's a, it's a Jewish document, it's the instructions on how to do different things in the synagogue and so on. And, and th- this one describes how to flog people, right? in case we ever need it here at church. Here we, here's where we find it, right? How to flog people. How do they scourge him? They bind his two hands to a pillar on either side, and the minister of the synagogue lays hold on his garments so that he bears his chest. A stone is set down behind him on which the minister of the synagogue stands, so we can have leverage, right? Stands with a strap of calf hide in his hand, doubled and redoubled, and two other straps that rise and fall are fastened thereto. He must give him one third of the stripes in front and two thirds behind. And he may not strike him when he is standing or when he is sitting, but only when he is bending low. For it is written in Deuteronomy 25.2, the judge shall cause him to lie low. And he that smites, smites with his one hand with all his might. And if he dies under his hand, the scourger is not culpable. They had to add that in there. 
because people died from scourging. It was that violence, right? Stephen wasn't ignorant of scourging. And he wasn't ignorant that his leaders had been scourged for the same thing that he's talking about. But he has that boldness because he's a follower of Jesus, right? What causes one to have this strength? What causes one to be bold like this? Again, it's not rocket science. It's not superhero status. It says here in verse 8, he was full of grace and power. What does that mean? Full of grace and power. What does it mean to be full of God's grace? Certainly speaks to his character a bit, graceful, winsome. But I suggest this to you. When we truly encounter God's grace, it is life-changing. I live in God's grace. Daryl Bach writes, Stephen lived in the enabling power of God's grace. Living in God's grace means I depend on God. Why do I depend on God? Because I know I need him. I, I, I need him for salvation. I live in God's grace by acknowledging that I am a sinner and God has rescued me. And the knowledge of that love and that grace in the gospel infuses my life with power and strength. I'm not much, but I'm loved by God. I'm rescued. God's there. I rest in his grace when I say I have no strength, right? And I let God's grace flow through me. We see this in Paul's writings, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So when I don't do things on my own, when I lean and depend on God's grace... When I sit there and say, God, I have nothing to give here. I have no strength. I have no words. I have no ability. Just please use me. That's when God says, I got you, right? Paul understood this, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. God, I'm weak. God, I have this. I can't do this. Take this away. God says, no, you don't need me to take it away. You just need my grace. Rely on me. Fall on me. Depend on me. This is where Stephen found his power. He just depended on God. He submitted it to God. He didn't act in his pride. He didn't act in his own power. And that's when God uses us. That's when God's strength is made manifest through us, right? Grace is transformative. It's a transformative, empowering, motivating force in the Christian's life. And God's grace can have the same effect on my life as it had on Stephen's. So again, this is not for the spiritually elite. This is for all of us. The same spirit. We've already talked about this in previous weeks, but again, this stuff keeps cycling back in Acts, right? The presence of the Holy Spirit. Go all the way back to Acts 2, Peter's sermon on Pentecost, where he's quoting Joel 2 about these days of Pentecost and following these days of the church. Joel 2's prophecy, Peter's sermon. What does he say? In that day, I will pour my spirit out on the spiritually elite. No. In that day, I will pour my spirit out on the pastors and deacons and missionaries. No. In that day, the prophet says... And Peter proclaims, I will pour my spirit out on all flesh, on all men. Right? Spirit, available, 
but I'm not this, I'm not that. I'm, right, you're not. Good. Glad we've come to that understanding. What you are is a spirit-infused follower of Jesus Christ. That's where your power is. Stephen had these traits. You go back, you think of the traits that were, that were described when they chose the seven, right? He's a man full of, of wisdom, a man of character. He just lived out his faith. He walked in obedience, full of faith in the Holy Spirit, it says in chapter 6, verse 5. All Stephen is, is an example of a man who took to himself all the same resources that you have available to you today, and he became a mature believer. Stephen wasn't a superhero. Stephen was just a mature believer. And when we take advantage of the resources God had given us, the Word, the Spirit, the people of God, we grow in maturity. This is Ephesians 4, Paul says. We grow up in maturity when we function together as the body of Christ, all using our gifts uh, to encourage and exhort one another. We grow to maturity. That's what Stephen was. Right? I had this quote up here. I shared this with you last week, and I thought it was worth sharing again from Lloyd-Jones. A man full of the Spirit is one who is living a normal Christian life. Fullness of the Spirit is not a state of spiritual aristocracy to which few can attain. Anything less than the fullness of the Spirit for the Christian man is disease of the spiritual life, a low ebb of vitality. Fullness of the Spirit is not abnormal, but normal Christian life. I've been doing my devos in, in Nehemiah uh, here following our, our youth group devo that we use. And uh, I was struck in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 2, where uh, um, the wall has been completed, and, uh, but there's still challenges. There's, there's challenges within. There's some connections within Jerusalem, some power struggle within, and, and, and connected with some people on the outside, and there's opposition without. So even when the wall was completed, there was still opposition that Nehemiah was, was facing. And I love it. He picked two guys. One of them was his brother, and then this other guy, I don't remember his name, and we're not going to take the time to look back there, but it, it sounded Jewish. Um, and, um, and this is the rationale. This is what Nehemiah says when he picked him. He said, I chose him because he was more faithful more God-fearing than most men. He was the right man for the... And, and all he was, was just, he was just faithful. I'm like, man, look at that. Like he was chosen for this incredibly important task and the f- greatest quality that Nehemiah looked for and pointed out is that he feared God. There it is. Any one of us in this room can pick that characteristic up and live it out. And that is what enables us. Here's another thought about Stephen, and this links back to where we were last week, or two weeks ago, sorry. Stephen becomes another example of how the body works together. There's no mention here in the choosing of the seven and of the persecution narrative. There's no mention of Peter, of John, of the apostles. Right? Um, Here's another guy who's sharing the load, doing this together. It wasn't all on Peter. It wasn't all on John. Here is one of the, the deacons, I mean, this is one of the deacons of the church. 
preaching the word of God. Right? The shared load. I, I could go back, again, my mind's been Nehemiah a little bit. We could take, if we took the time, we could turn back to Nehemiah chapter 3, and we could read that. And you know what? You'd be incredibly bored. You know why? You know what Nehemiah 3 is? And so-and-so built their section of the wall. And so-and-so took care of the part of the wall in front of their house. And so-and-so took part, uh, care of this part of the wall and the gate. And so-and-so took care of the wall from this point to this point. And the next guy took care of this part of the wall. And another guy took part, uh, care of the wall from this gate to this gate. And another guy put bolts in the gate at this point. And, uh, and you're like, dude, stop it. Like, well, that's the whole chapter. I love that. None of those people were superheroes. Those people just said, here, we got to do this. Nehemiah, that, that, that wall was completed in 52 days, right? It was 52 days. You know what? If there's no Nehemiah chapter 3, Nehemiah doesn't get that wall built. Without all of those people doing a task right in front of them. Nehemiah was dependent on them. And these people committed themselves and they said, I'm going to, and some of these people were sacrificing. You read Nehemiah. I mean, they left, some of them left their fields and such to, to the harvest. They're like, we're going to come. And they committed themselves to something bigger than themselves. themselves and we're going to do this. We're going to do it together. And that's how the wall was built. And Stephen is an example of this in Acts. The gospel goes out in Acts 8 because the persecuted people proclaim the word of God. Paul was just a part of that. Peter was just a part of that. Every single person, though, understood, I'm a disciple. I walk in obedience to Jesus, and I'm going to do what God is calling me to do to proclaim this gospel message and fulfill the mission. It's so critical. And Stephen's a great example of this. No Paul here, no Peter here. This ordinary guy, Stephen, who became mature. made an impact, the gospel that's resounded down through the generations. Zach does robotics at school. We went to our first robotics competition last year. I was like, this is going to be the worst day of my life. (laughs) Right? I mean, I'm like, we're going to watch robots. We're going to be in a room full of engineers and I already apologized to Ted in the first. Right? I just like how exciting can this be, right? Oh my word! Like, like Kathy is screaming and slamming the thing. Like that's, I'm like, this is so intense. She's like, this is worse than like watching him pitch, because Zach's the driver. I'll brag a little bit of my son. Like Zach drives this robot, and he's really good at it, right? Um, so he's the driver. He's got this remote. He drives the robot. But guess what? He actually drives with someone else because while Zach operates the robot steering it and there's these, these arenas they put him in, it's not like battle bots. That would be even cooler. They had like, like little saws that came out and cut the, <laughs> can we put one of those on there for next year, you know? Um, but, they, they, uh, but, no, they, but this year it's all different. They're like picking up these cones and they're having to, to drop them onto these different heights of uh, rods and you get points based on how high. And then you can go over and you can steal one. Like if this, if this team has like four cones on their ride, you can go over towards the end and try to drop one on there and like steal it from them because if your color's on top, of the, it's like, it's intense. And then like running into each other and you're like screaming and I loved it, right? But here's the thing. First of all, the two drivers, highly coordinated. 
Like that other, like the one guy has to drive up there and you have to just be in timing where the guy drops the thing down and picks it up and then you got to watch and when he picks it up, you got to back out. And I mean, it's, but here's the other thing. The weeks leading up to that competition, guess what? There's builders. There's two or three people who have to build that robot and understand how that robot's put together. And you have coders. Zach is one of the coders, and there's three or four other coders who are, have to code that thing and code the computer on it so that they know how to use the, how the robot knows how to respond to the remote and so on. You have that. You have the other people who have to go out and secure. They have like a, a media team that has to go out and secure funding and sponsors to pay for the thing. And, and then you see this in play because they, they made it to the final game, the championship, and uh, in between the first and se- in, in, in the first, um, it's best out of three, in the first one, about halfway through, their arm malfunctioned. It wasn't working. So then they're just trying to push stuff. And, and the timer goes off, and, uh, and they've got like three minutes. And here's where it gets cool. Three minutes. They run out. Tim Vandekoppel was one of his coaches. And they go, and they grab this thing, and they go over, and they put it in the pit. They have a pit. It's cool. It's like NASCAR. Take it to the pit. They take the robot to the pit. And guess what? Zach and Allie, the other driver, Zach's not doing anything. He's standing back there nervously watching. And guess what? The builders, the guys who know, they're there, and they're repairing this thing. And, and they get it all, and Tim's there, and they get it, and they get it in three minutes, and they get it, they get it back in, and put it, and they can compete. Guess what? If there's no builder who understands the working of that thing, the driver's worthless. If no one coded that thing, you can play with that remote all you want. It's going to do different stuff, right? It's, and I, I was, it was so clear. Like, you could just see how cool this was that all of these pieces doing the thing that was right in front of them made the whole thing work, right? This is where we were a couple weeks ago. But Stephen continues to, to give us this example. He's a great example to us in this way. I'm going to ask Spencer to come on up. I want to note this, and we're going to pick this up next week because the sermon in Acts 7 flows right out of this. God's truth God's truth still proves to be superior to worldly wisdom, right? Because what, what happens here? We, we mentioned this already. The persecution now is initiated from the general populace and not just the religious leaders. These freedmen. The culture, the city of Jerusalem was turning on the believers. This preaches in our day and age, doesn't it? Christianity is not just targeted by the elites and and, and the academic realms in our universities. Christianity is more and more of a stain in the eyes of the general populace of our world. There's nothing new under the sun. We're following the same pattern. That is the context in which we're called to live. Working together, and as we're going to see next week, boldly proclaiming truth. Which, by the way, they had no answer for, right? They had no answer for God's truth. I want to come back all the way around to where we started. This was the last day of Stephen's life. This is Stephanos. This is how he went out. We go to this cottage in the summers up north. And uh, I've gone there for several years, so it's been kind of cool. We've gone there since my kids were little, and, and uh, it's right on the lake, and I love it. And we go out there in this cottage, and, um, and I remember years ago, and this, this became the pattern over the years. And I, you know, you're there, and there's the, the lounge chair, or my hammock, and the lemonade, and my book. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to sit down, enjoy vacation, rest, I'm going to sleep. 
And all of a sudden, down the stairs from the lake, I'd hear this little voice. Sometimes it was the voice of a little boy, and sometimes it was the voice of these little girls. Daddy, come play with us. You come play with us. I look at my hammock, my lemonade, my book, and I look at those little eyes waiting for Daddy down at the water. All right. I walk down the stairs and play. Anyway, when you get old, you start getting more reflective and you start thinking stuff, right? Because our kids don't stay those little. And I remember the last time we were there, I actually had had this thought a couple times, but the last time we were there, just thinking stage of life and things we were at. I, kids were all in the car and I went around back to make sure everything was locked up, put away one last time. And I looked out at the lake where I played with my kids. And I looked over where my hammock had been hanging. And I'm like... We played. I played. 20 years from now, I'm not going to care about the hammock. But I'm going to be able to say, I played. I didn't love it in the moment. I did, actually. That moment when you're like, I want to do my hammock. But, but then you go down and you're like, this is worthwhile. This is worth the sacrifice of the hammock. I played. Listen, when we stand before God, right, we want to say, God, I played. I played. No regrets. I didn't waste the time. I took advantage of it. While I was here, I played. That's what Stephen did, man. Stephen played. And he stood before God in just a few hours of this and went, God said, you did, Stephen. Well done. Worship on our way out.